them, but let's pray specifically tonight for, uh, for the blood pressure to come down and be regulated and for his kidneys, um, for that swelling to go away so that they can start the treatment and do what they need to do. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you, your people, your children, bringing you needs that only you can take care of. God, you know what's going on in Brandon's life and in the life of his family, so we just pray that you would minister to that need and and provide the perfect solution, the perfect answer. Lord, and we believe that uh, that you can and that you will. Lord, we lift Dawson up to you in prayer again. You are already showing your hand mightily. God, there there have been miracles already. And so we uh, we pray specifically tonight, Lord, for his kidneys and for his blood pressure. Lord, you can see in that little body. You shaped that body. You formed that body while he was still in his mother's womb. You knit him together. Lord, there's not a single thing that's going on in his body that mystifies you, that, that confuses you. So, Lord, we pray that healing virtue would flow. Lord, that the things that, that need to take place in his body for, for doctors to begin treatment would take place. Lord, and again, I pray for Dave and Farah and the rest of the family that they would just be surrounded by peace and by comfort. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you. Um, you can be seated. Um, I think it's important that we note the things that God has done. Uh, life turns on a dime, folks, and it's a good day to know God. Um, you know, all of this started, it, it seems, you know, just for someone as distant from the situation as myself, this started on Sunday, and it seems like it's been two weeks already. Uh, you know, it's a grueling thing to go through something like that. But the fact that um, there was a, a bed open at the ICU, that's that's a miracle. Um, the fact that the, there was a mass in his chest. Now, I, I know there's stuff out there on Facebook, and, and I've even reported some things incorrectly myself, but whatever that mass was, whether it was a shadow, whether it was a gland that was swollen, whatever it was, that mass is no longer there. Um, they told Dave and Farah that Dawson would be in the ICU for at least three to five days. They said that they were going to move him into a regular room today. Um, you know, you, if you've got to have cancer which I don't want anybody to have cancer, but if you've got to have cancer and they tell you the one that you have has a very high rate of remission and curability, then we give God all of the glory for all of these things. And so let's not, let's not, um, let's not be ignorant of what God has already done because his hand has already been there and he is working on his behalf. So continue to pray for them. I know you will, uh, but can you continue to lift them up in prayer? I believe God has something for us tonight, and um, I, I hope that you will uh, that you will listen with spiritual ears and uh, and see what God can can put into your heart tonight. I'm going to read from John chapter nine, verses thirteen through sixteen, and and I did not give anybody back there in the back any kind of scriptures, and that's that's on me. But um, if you have a device or, or an actual paper Bible and want to go to John chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. And just because I like to be difficult, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. This is verse 13. They took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. 
The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. The next little while, I want to talk to you about this idea. How will you see what you see? How will you see what you see? Context matters, so let's take a little bit of time to look at what's going on in here in John 9. John 9 is actually a continuation of the story that started in chapter 7 and went on in chapter 8. Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem, and it's the final Sabbath day at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Shelters. The Feast of Tabernacles included two major themes, and one of those involved a ceremony where the high priest would pour water out. And then the other involved a ceremony at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles where these large lanterns were lit. So water and light. Water being poured out, lanterns being lit, water and light. Big deal for this Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is about to use both in this miracle for this blind man. And I believe Jesus is being a little mischievous. I think he's having a little fun with these hard-headed Jews. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and they come across this blind man. And the disciples say, Jesus, well, why is this man blind? Did he sin, or did his, did his parents sin? Who's, whose fault is this that this man can't see? And Jesus tells him, look, this isn't about sin, and this isn't about assigning blame. This is about God's power being made manifest. Jesus was saying, fellas, when it comes to the mess of life, you guys would be a lot better disciples if you'd quit pointing fingers and focus on God getting glory. That's your free sermon for tonight. So, so Jesus spits on the ground and, and he makes mud with his saliva and he smears it on the man's eyes, and then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam was the only freshwater pool in Jerusalem. It's fed by a mile-long aqueduct that ran underneath the city, and the blind man goes to Siloam, and he washes, and his eyes are opened. Boom. There's a miracle. So here at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus uses water, saliva, and the water from the pool to bring light to the eyes of this blind man. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on that. It's not the focus of my sermon. I just think it's cool. I do want you to get hung up on, on this instead. There was a problem with all of this. Everybody say there's a problem. I don't want you all going to sleep. Not everybody said it. Everybody say there was a problem. Some of you people in the back still didn't say it. There was a problem. Okay. And, and it was a big problem, see, because it was a Sabbath day. And according to the Pharisees, one just doesn't do that kind of thing on the Sabbath. You don't work on Sunday. And healing blind people, well, that, that's work. So Jesus is working on Sunday. 
Well, he, he's not respecting God, and he's not respecting the law, and he's not respecting the prophets. It's a big problem. So now we got to get the holiness police to come in and figure out who's not following the rules. Guys coming in with their their, their, their noses all snarled up and their loincloths in the wad or whatever it is they wore. Who broke the rules? Who, who broke the rules? Who, who, who's messing with protocol around here? I mean, this, this is Jerusalem. You know where you are? We got a certain way of doing things around here. Who's having a move of God on on a Sunday? So they, the, the holiness police come in and they conduct an investigation. And the Pharisees call in witnesses and they, they take statements and they don't, they don't like it. They don't like it. And there's division among the Pharisees as we read in our text. They, they, they couldn't decide whether he was of God or whether he was... Of the devil. Well, I mean, he must be of the devil if he's breaking the law and, and healing people on the Sabbath. But you know what? On the other hand, he must be of God if he's doing all these great miracles. They, they just they didn't know what to do with Jesus. Because Jesus wouldn't play by their rules. I love it whenever people don't know what to do with Jesus. See, Jesus didn't fit into their theology. He didn't follow their tradition. He didn't do things the way they had always been done. He didn't do things the way they expected or the way that they were accustomed to. And the thing that was most frustrating was that Jesus just wouldn't give them what they wanted. See, over and over again in Scripture, the Pharisees and Jews ask Jesus for a sign. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Matthew 22, Mark 8, Luke 11, Luke 23, John 2, John 6. Just a few examples. The Pharisees ask Jesus over and over and over again, give us, give us a sign. Now, I want full disclosure here tonight. My, my very good friend, longtime friend, and, 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 and a man that I just respect very much spoke in my Sunday school class on Sunday. And, and Brian Tear spoke on the topic of when there is no sign, when no sign comes. And he and all, I have already talked about this. This is not a shot at Brian. It's not a shot at his lesson. His stuff was excellent. And I would challenge you, go on to the church website, pull up the app, and listen to Brian's lesson from this past Sunday because it was excellent. There's not a problem with asking for a sign whenever the motives in your heart and spirit are right. There's no problem there. But there is a problem whenever you get hung up on the fact that there is no sign. Well, okay. They want Jesus to give them a sign to prove to them who he is. Prove to us that you're Messiah. Now, and, and that's crazy to me because 
Jesus is healing blind people. Jesus is healing deaf people. Jesus is healing lame people. Jesus is healing sick people. Jesus is healing leprous people. He's raising up dead people. He's casting out demons. He's turning water into wine. He's making buffets out of dried up filet of fish sandwiches. And they still say, show pr- proof to us who you are. Guys, Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. On top, he, he was fulfilling their Scripture because these were Old Testament cats. These guys knew that Old Testament prophecy backwards and forwards. He's fulfilling their Scripture, and he's doing it right in front of their eyes. Yet they still ask him for a sign. And it's, it's crazy to me because it was, happening, it, it was happening right there in front of them. More signs than you could shake a stick at. There was a divine move of God that was staring them right in the eyes. But they couldn't see it. And it wasn't because Jesus wasn't doing anything. And it wasn't because God wasn't moving. The problem wasn't God. The problem wasn't that God wouldn't do a miracle. The problem was in how they saw what they saw. They thought Jesus was the problem. But it it wasn't Jesus. They were the ones with the problem. And it was their problem was how they saw him. The problem was how they saw what they saw. I'm, I'm getting that look from you people. And I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable up here. I'm not nervous tonight at all, so y'all in trouble. You scared of you cats? Okay, listen. How, thank you, Brother Phil. How many of you have problems? My hand is up, not merely for suggestion. My name is Jason. I have problems. How many of you have problems? Okay, put them down. How many of you want to solve problems? Raise your hands. We have a few people in here that don't want to solve problems. How many of you can testify to the fact that living for God is not the absence of problems? Let's go ahead and clear that up right away. That living for God is not the absence of problems. What living for God is, is the presence of a problem solver. It's having access to supernatural stuff while in the middle of your problem. That's what living for God is. Supernatural power, yes, but also supernatural joy, supernatural peace, supernatural wisdom, supernatural hope, and... You ready? <laughs> Y'all not ready. And supernatural perspective. It's a supernatural way of looking at things. It's the presence of an answer. It, do, it doesn't make the problems go away. But it equips us to better answer the problems of life. It's the same problems that our friends have, our family members have, our neighbors, the people around the water cooler at work. 
but we've got supernatural help and supernatural perspective. At least we should. Folks, we need to check our vision. We have to check how I see what I see. Because when the problems of life arise, it's all too easy to see them incorrectly. To see them with just natural human eyes and not see them with... Y'all not getting me. Whenever a divine move of God interrupts our routine and interrupts our life and it throws off our plan and it messes up our schedule and it starts fooling around with our tradition, we need to check ourselves and make sure that we are seeing things correctly. We need perspective. We need to let all of the information in. Not just what we expect to see and not just what we want to see. Let, let, me, let me try it like this. Let me, let me try getting at it with a history lesson. Y'all ready? Here we go. February 22nd, 1911. A man named Gaston Herview climbed the Eiffel Tower to test a new parachute for pilots. He checked the wind, he took a nervous breath, and he began the test. His silk parachute filled with air and then sailed safely to the ground. Herview did not make the jump himself. Instead, he used a 160-pound test dummy. But to another man there that day, Herview's test was an outrage. His name was Franz Reichelt, and he was an Austrian tailor who was himself developing a parachute. And he denounced Herview's use of a, of a test dummy as a sham. And one year later, on the morning of, of Sunday, February 4th, 1912, he arrived at the Eiffel Tower to conduct his own experiment. As Reichelt posed for pictures, he announced, I am so convinced my device will work properly that I will jump myself. Gaston Herview pulled Reichelt aside and tried to stop him. Herview claimed that there were technical reasons why Reichelt's parachute would not work. The two men had a heated discussion until finally Reichelt walked away. Modern parachutes use 700 square feet of fabric and should be deployed only above 250 feet. Reichelt's parachute used less than 350 square feet of fabric and he deployed it at 187 feet above the ground. He had neither the surface area nor the altitude needed to make a successful jump. Interestingly enough, Herview was not the only one who had told Reichelt that his parachute would not work. It had also been rejected by a team of experts who told him in no uncertain terms, the surface of your device is too small, you will break your neck. Reichelt not only ignored experts, he also, get this, ignored his own data. He tested his parachute using dummies. They crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 30 feet into a haystack himself, and he crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 20 feet without a haystack, and he crashed and broke his leg. Instead of changing his invention, he clung to his bad idea in face of all of the evidence and advice. Reichelt fell for four seconds. 
accelerating constantly until he hit the ground at 60 miles an hour, making a cloud of frost and dust and a dent six inches deep in the ground. He was killed on impact. Reichelt's problem, folks, was perspective. He would not allow in any new information. He couldn't see anything other than what he wanted to see. He couldn't see anything other than what he expected to see. Now, how many of you here tonight would agree that Reichelt's He's not only stubborn to a fault, but his point of view, his perspective killed him. Yeah, okay. Well, folks, let me tell you something. Our point of view, our lack of perspective is killing us. It's killing us. It will, it will destroy us. It, it's wrecking our marriages. It's destroying relationships. It's, it's causing us to give up on hopes and dreams. It's crushing our faith. It's robbing us of peace. It's stealing hope. Perspective, folks. It's how we see what we see. And it's the root of every crisis of faith, Brian Tier. He's not here tonight, but he'll get that later. It's at the root of every problem we have. It's a matter of perspective. At the turn of the last century, the world's most famous and distinguished astronomer was a certain man named uh, per- Percival Lowell. And Percival Lowell was convinced, convinced that there were canals on Mars. Um, canals that someone had built. Sir Percival Lowell, uh, who was esteemed for a study of the solar system, had a particular fascination with the red planet. And in 1877, he heard that an Italian astronomer had seen straight lines crisscrossing the Martian surface. And so Lowell spent the rest of his years squinting into the eyepiece of this giant telescope in Arizona, mapping the channels and canals that he saw. He was convinced that the canals were proof of intelligent life on Mars, possibly this older but wiser race than humanity. And his observations gained pretty widespread acceptance among some. So eminent and so respected was Percival Lowell that nobody really wanted to contradict him. But now, of course, um, things are different, right? We've sent probes to Mars. Our telescopes have gotten better. Uh, We've had probes land on Mars. The whole surface of the planet has has been mapped, and nobody's seen a canal. There's no evidence of an older and wiser race that once lived on Mars. But yet Lowell was convinced that they existed. How could somebody that smart... have seen so much that wasn't there. Maybe maybe Percival Lowell wanted to see the canals that that he saw them over and over and over again. That's very possible. But what we now know is that Percival Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease that made him see the blood vessels in his own eye. The Martian canals that Lowell saw were nothing more than the bulging veins in his own eyeball. And today the malady is known as Lowell's syndrome. What Lowell saw on Mars, folks, was a disease in his own vision. 
And so the tragedy of this story is that he spent most of his remaining years projecting his own problem onto the object of his affection. I don't know that y'all caught that. He loved Mars. He, he was fascinated by Mars, but he spent his remaining years putting his own problem and projecting his own problem onto what he loved. Maybe whenever Jesus warns us in Mark 8 about those who have eyes to see, but see not, and ears to hear, but, but hear not, could it be that that he's warning us about contracting the spiritual equivalent of, of Lowell syndrome. Because over and over and over again, we seek a sign. We, we want to be validated. Over and over and over again, we miss. We do, folks. Y'all, we miss what God is doing right in front of us because our perspective is flawed. I, I want to say this again. I know I'm repeating myself. I know this is bad preaching or teaching or whatever it is I'm doing up here, but I don't care. I, I, want, you to, I want you to get this. The Pharisees didn't see who Jesus was. Now, Jesus told them, and Jesus showed them, but they still didn't get it. Ben, there was this divinely orchestrated, anointed, move of God that was happening right in front of them, and they still missed it. God was doing the very thing they had prayed for. God was working out the very thing that they had longed for. They they wanted Messiah. They wanted deliverance. They wanted redemption. They wanted salvation. They wanted freedom. They wanted miracles. But they missed it. How? Why? It has to do with how they saw what they saw. They saw and heard Jesus. They saw his work. They saw his miracles. They heard his word. They saw and heard the same things that the people who believed saw and heard. But they still missed it. They didn't see what they expected. Jesus didn't come the way they expected him to come. Jesus didn't look how they expected him to look. Jesus didn't work the way they expected him to work. And they didn't see what they wanted. And we, this is where, I'm, I'm going to leave you all out of this one. This is where Jason Cooper has got to be careful. Because they didn't see what they wanted from him, Casey. They wanted freedom from Roman oppression. They wanted to be proven right. They wanted to be validated. They wanted to be able to say, see, we were right, you were wrong, I told you so. They wanted reward now for services rendered. Instead of seeing Jesus for who and what he was. Instead of seeing, instead of seeing the answer to their prayer, what they saw was a threat to their tradition. They saw a threat, let's break this down, 2016. They saw a threat to how they were used to having church and how they liked having church. 2,000 years of God dealing with humanity a certain way, and and we've got to throw all of that out the window of Jesus as the Messiah. 
Our whole way of life is going to change. If, if this is really the answer to prayer, it changes everything. Folks, that, that's the high price of a free miracle. Jesus didn't charge them a dime. But there's, there's a price attached to a free miracle. It's, it's, it's the aftermath of a miracle. Y- y'all know what the, an aftermath is? That, that's that period or state of affairs that follows a pretty significant event. Folks, a move of God shakes things up, and it changes how you do things. And people want a miracle without the move that comes afterward. They, we want Christ without the cost. We want salvation without surrender. Every time you go through and look in the, old, in the New Testament while Christ is walking this planet, and every time he delivered somebody, something changed, something had to die. An old way of life. And people want God to change their situation without a change of heart or a change of thinking. But that's how God works. Is this okay? Y'all too quiet. So in Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 through 42, just just listen, just listen. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. We know what's going on here, right? Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Well, then let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Simple enough. Come down from the cross, Jesus, and we'll believe. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe that those people would have believed even if he had come down from the cross. But ask yourself this. Do you think Jesus wanted those people that were saying those things to believe in him? Do you think Jesus wanted those people to believe in him? I would say, yes, he did. Almost certainly he did. I'm pretty sure that that he's not willing that any should perish, but that, but that all would come to repentance. Even those mean, nasty, horrible people that were, that were saying those horrible things about him, he still wanted them to believe. So why didn't Jesus just give them what they needed so that they could believe? It was the sign that they wanted. It was the miracle that they wanted. It was... It was the sign that they said they needed. But Jesus didn't do it. Why not? You already know the answer, don't you? Because Jesus had a greater miracle in mind. I'm working for the redemption of the entire human race. 
How will you see what you see? What if he doesn't give you the sign that you want? What if he doesn't give you the sign that you need? What if he doesn't give you the miracle that you say you need most? I'm going to get real direct here in this last part. I'm going to give you some hope, though. I'm almost done. What do you do whenever your world caves in? What do you do whenever your 10-year-old is diagnosed with cancer? What do you see when your world falls apart? Genesis chapter 42, verses 35 through 36. This is that, that portion of, of the story of, of Joseph whenever he's, he's having a little fun and games with his brothers and, and, and that, that reconciliation process has started. And his brothers have gone back to their father, Jacob. And it says, as they were emptying their sacks... There in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Jacob felt like, I, I followed God all of my life. I haven't done everything right. I know I've made mistakes, but I have really tried to do this the right way and to follow God, and this is what I get? Folks, the heat of the moment, the heat of the environment can cause loyalty to evaporate. Ask Peter what the heat of the environment will do. Ask Judas what the heat of the environment will do. Things fall apart on us, and we think, how am I ever going to get out of this? We find God at the end of ourselves. You know, the fact that the Holy Ghost is called the Comforter means that we are going to need some comforting. And Jacob had been through a lot of dark places up to this point in his life. But this one, this one was something different. Because this one affected Jacob in a way that none of those other dark places had before had done. He said, all of these things are against me. Everything's against me. Everything is going wrong. And if we live long enough, we'll all get there. But the reality is that some things that seem to be against us are actually for us. The Bible says judge nothing before it's time. 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. We need to learn to separate our experiences in life from our relationship with God. 
Because circumstances in life may say, your world's caving in. Your world's over. Everything is against you. But when really the exact opposite is true. Joseph wasn't dead. Get, get, the, get, the, get the contrast here. Jacob is back home saying, everything is against me. This one's dead, and that one's taken, and now this one's gone. Everything is against me. And while Jacob is living with that reality, there's a completely different reality going on back in Egypt. Joseph wasn't dead. Joseph was very much alive. Joseph wasn't just surviving. Joseph was thriving. Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. But Jacob thought he was dead. Jacob thought it was over. But it was, it was just starting to get good. I don't know if y'all caught that part. Jacob thought it was over. But it was just starting to get good. Jacob thought all of these things were going wrong when the opposite was actually true. God was working something out for his benefit and through the benefit of his sons. You know what God was working on? I'll tell you what God was working on. God was working on reconciliation. I'm about to take this busted up, dysfunctional, crazy family and put it all back together again. I'm getting ready to heal old hurts and put damaged relationships back together. That's what God was working on. Jacob thought, everything is against me. God was working on provision. He was making sure that his special children were going to be well taken care of during a very serious time of drought and famine. Jacob thought, everything is against me. God's saying, son, I'm trying to take care of you. God was working out glorification. Making sure that his name and his people would be glorified. Making sure that there would be a shining testimony of his power and his love and his ability. Jacob thought everything was over and everything was against him. God's working for glorification. I'll tell you what, the process of glorification is never fun. It involves refining. It involves improvement. It involves getting better. What is our perception of what's going on? What, what's going on in your life tonight? Well, how do you see what you see? Because we can have perfect faith in how our circumstances appear, or we can have perfect faith in God. But make no mistake about it, folks, it is a choice. It is a choice. We choose how we will see what we see. I'm going to have faith in something. Why not have faith in God and that he is working all things together for my good? We choose our perspectives. 
And more often than not, our perspective is our problem. So how will we see what we see? Let's stand tonight. Lord, I, I've, I've tried real hard to do a good job. Um, it, it, this, is a, this is a different one tonight just because of the stuff that's, that's going on in our church with, with Dawson. And, and, and there's other people that are struggling with issues here tonight. Lord, there's, there's other needs. He, Dawson and, and Dave and Farah, they're not the only ones that have needs here tonight. That's the one that's been foremost of our brains. But, you know, there, there's other stuff going on in people's lives, God. I, I might have been too direct tonight, Lord. I don't know, but I, I know what you've been saying to me about how I see the stuff that's going on in my life. So maybe somebody somebody needs a vision correction here tonight. And, Lord, that's not something that I can do. That's something that has to come through your spirit. So what I'm going to pray just in closing tonight, Lord, is that your spirit will overshadow us and if our perspectives need to be changed, then do that. Help us to see how we should see. Adjust, adjust our eyes. Adjust our focus. Lord, when no sign comes, when, when it's not the way that we wanted, when it's not what we expected, whenever it messes up our routine and our tradition, Lord, whenever you're working and moving and, and actually doing the things that we have prayed for and longed for, but it's not the way that we expected, I pray that you would help us to see better. Help us to see better. Lord, if there's a, if there's a touch of, of spiritual Lowell syndrome in our eyes, if, if we're guilty of not letting in all of the information and just the information that we want, then, then help us to change. Help us to be better. Lord, help how we see what we see. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God bless you, folks. Thank you all for being here tonight. Love each and every one of you. Turn around and give somebody a fist bump, handshake. Tell them how nice they look. Y'all have a good evening. God bless. We'll see you on Sunday. Oh, the business meeting has been um, postponed.